We've been uh, talking the past couple weeks about showing love to God, and we talked about how important it is that we have a loving relationship with God that will last for all eternity. So how is it we express that? And this morning I want to talk about prayer, uh, simply because one of the uh, hallmarks of a great relationship is there's lots of communication, there's open communication, the communication, flow, the communication flows naturally and easily. And one of the telltale signs that there's something wrong in a relationship, of course, is that communication breaks down and you shut off communication, uh, whether it be like Dwight's doing towards Andy or maybe what's happened in some of your relationships. And in talking about prayer, I was just looking through, studying some of the scriptures on it, and one of the passages that really stood out to me was from Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where it says to be, let me make sure I get this right, to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And I thought to myself, that's kind of an odd trio of things to say. This is when Paul's kind of getting towards the end of the book of Romans, and he's sort of summarizing up some things to do as far as, you know, living out your Christian life. You know, now that you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's some things you need to do towards each other. And so he says these three things, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. I started thinking to myself, what do these three things have in common? The idea of joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And what kept jumping out of the page of me was, they're all really hard to do, right? I mean, joyful in hope. It's hard to have joy when you're in the midst of a season of hope, because when you're in the midst of a season of hope, typically you have hope in desperate times. Something difficult's going on, there's something you don't have that you desperately need, and the only thing you have to hold on to is hope. It's really hard to have a joyful sentiment when you're in desperate need. So joyful in hope, really hard. And then when he says patient in affliction, no, no thank you on that one. No, let's just get this Let's just get this over with as quick as possible. I don't want to be patient through this. I don't want to be like, hey, you know, take your time laying it on me, God. You know, I'm just, I'm here for the long haul. Just bring it on. I'm just, I'm cool with whatever. No, I'm like, you tell me what the quickest thing we can do to get this over with, and I'm good with that. So patient and affliction. But then this last one, faithful in prayer. That may be the most difficult of the three, Right? And it's really kind of funny because the other two push you in different ways. You know, they, they sort of push you against the grain. Like, I don't want to be joyful in the midst of hope. I don't want to be patient in the midst of reflection. I actually want to be faithful in prayer. But I think it's the hardest of any of them. And I don't know why. Uh, in, over the years of doing work with our, our men's groups at the church, uh, we've done seasons of spiritual disciplines. Things like reading your Bible every day or listening to a sermon every day, or exercising every day, or having times of meditation every day, uh, or fasting, which where you don't even eat food all day. Over and over again, though, the guys tell me the hardest one to do is what we call five for five, and that's where you would pray for five minutes five times a day. Sounds easy enough, right? I mean, come on, that's the length of like a commercial intermission, if you still even have commercials in TV shows. I don't even know if you have that anymore, uh, but I mean, five minutes. How hard is it just to pray five times a day for five minutes? Uh, after all, I think Muslims do that, don't they? I mean, can't we at least do what they do? We don't have to get on our knees, pray towards the direction of some. Just You can do whatever you want. Just pray five times a day for five minutes. Over and over, the guys are like, no, that's the hardest one. I'll take anything else. Anything else other than that. Why? Why is it so hard to pray sometimes? And I started thinking about why is it so hard to pray. I mean, it really should be the easiest of any of the disciplines. It's like, I would rather go all day without eating food than to have to pray five times a day for five minutes. Seems kind of odd, right? But over and over again, they'd say, yes, I'd rather do that. I'd rather exercise 30 minutes a day than have to pray for 25 minutes over, you know, spread out five times over the course of the day. Why? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is about the, the breakdown there. 
uh, I think it has something to do with uh, our relationship with God and some things that come up in our relationship with God. So I started looking through the scriptures and thinking in my own life, what is it that keeps me or prevents me from having this kind of a prayer life, from being faithful in prayer? And I only have time to really cover two of them this morning. Uh, and one of them is because so often I feel like as if God's treating me like Dwight is treating Andy, like God's shunning me, like God's mad at me for something. And I know what he's mad at me about. I always know what he's mad at me about. I just don't know how to deal with it, right? And sometimes we feel that way. And I got good news and bad news for you if you've ever felt that God is sort of shunning you in a sense. Uh, the bad news is he might be. He might actually be. Uh, Psalm 66 uh, verse 18 says this, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He's saying basically if I have this issue of sin in my heart that I'm holding on to, God's like, I don't want to talk about anything else until we talk about that. Which, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. It's the same thing you and I would do in that situation, right? Let's just say that you had a pre-teenager living in your house, assuming you're related, and they're living in your house, and they look at you and they say, I hate you. I don't ever want to talk to you again. And then they storm off, slam the door. Not that that would actually happen, but let's just say it did, right? <laughs> then an hour later, they come downstairs with a uniform and their cleats in hand, and they say, all right, Mom, I need to get my game. We've we got to be there in 10 minutes. How's that going to play out? Now, I'm not going to ask you what you would do. I'm just going to say, what would a good parent do? Would a good parent just say, all right, I'm a slave to my children after all. Yes, Miss Daisy, I will take you wherever you say where to go. After all, you're the master of this house. I'm just the peasant who serves your bidding. Is that what you would do as a parent, a loving parent? Or would you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Before we go anywhere, do anything, we need to talk about the I hate you, I don't ever want to talk to you again, slam door in my face routine, right? Wouldn't that be something you'd want to talk about before we did anything else? Yeah. In the same way, God wants to deal with the sin issue before we talk about anything else. He wants to talk about this thing that you decided that you're going to hold on to or do that's going to destroy your relationship with him and with other people. It's like, we need to talk about that. I, I, I want to talk about, I want to take you to the game. I want to go and cheer you on at the game. I want to be there for the game. I want to support you in the game. But before we go to the game, we need to talk about the, the, the tirade. We need to talk about that. It says in Scripture over and over again, uh, places like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Well, there it is. All we have to do is just say, God, I'm sorry. Uh, please forgive me. I, I, I didn't mean to do that. I, I don't want to do that again. I Just please forgive me for what I've done. And God, being an overly gracious parent, would just be like, all right, hop in the car, let's go. I'm not always saying that's the best thing to do parenting-wise, but God would just be like, hey, let's hop in the car, let's go. It's done. It's dealt with. Let's, let's move on from here. And that's just the way God treats us. Now, all of us have issues with projection. Projection is where we take something that we would do and we would assume somebody else would do the same thing. Uh, if I feel this way, I assume you're feeling this way. If I would respond this way, I assume you would respond this way. Uh, if I'm acting this way, I would assume you would act that same way. That's, that's called projection. And we do this in good ways and in bad ways. We, we project good things on people, we project bad things on people. Unfortunately, we do this with God. And so we project onto God how we're feeling. And so I assume, you know, after all, if my child treated me that way, I may forgive them, but I'm not really happy with them, 
right? I may still take him to the game, but I might say things like, listen, buddy, you're on thin ice because I've had it up to here with you. One more time of this, and we're not going to the game. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you say, you, you'd say those things like, right? And we assume that if there's a up to here with God, he's had it up to here, right? We totally disregard those, those verses about like wherever your sin increases, your God's grace increases all the more. Like as if, you know, God's grace is like, like you can never get to the end of God's grace. God's grace is like the internet. You never get to the end of it. Like it just keeps scrolling, right? Do you ever get to the point where you're like, I've, I've seen every webpage. I've, 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 I'm, I'm done. I, I, I looked at all of them. In the same way, you could never get to the end of God's grace. There's always grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But in my mind, I think to myself, if there's such thing as being on thin ice with somebody, I've got to be on thin ice with God, right? I mean, he's got to get to the point where he's like, all right, next time you're done. You're done, mister. You're not going to the game anymore. Anybody with me on this? Am I the only person who thinks that God kind of has these sort of feelings towards me? Which is why when I read passages, I completely disconnect them with my practical theology. So there's like, there's like your textbook theology. There's what you, you believe about God when you're sitting in here and reading the Bible. And then there's what you really actively think about God when you're actually living your life. That's your practical theology. And so often our practical theology is wrong. So when we read verses like this, Hebrews chapter four. Now, if there was ever a group of people who really struggled with the idea that God was gracious, it was the Jewish people. I mean, after all, God seemed to be mad at them for most of their history. Read the Old Testament. I mean, they'd mess up again and again and again, and they would get punished again and again and again. And so they're always thinking, you know, God literally has had it up to here with us. But if you read the Old Testament, how long does it take for him to have it up to here? Do y'all know? It's hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. God says, you do this one more time. All right, one more time. All right, last time, one more time. He is the most gracious, patient father ever in the Old Testament. So hundreds and hundreds of years pass before he ever judges them for anything. That's the reality of it. But they always feel like God's always mad at them. So to try to deal with that, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to them the relationship that God wants to have with us and just what it is that Jesus Christ has done. And so in chapter four of Hebrews, he says this, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest... The high priest he's talking about, of course, is Jesus Christ. The high priest is somebody who would go to God on their behalf, who'd go and intercede before them. He would go and say, God, uh, please forgive the people. Here's an offering I'm bringing to you on their behalf. And so the priest would be one who is holy enough to come into God's presence to be able to present the offering. Uh, He would do it on the Day of Atonement. He'd also bring other sacrifices throughout the year. And the idea is that he would go before God on their behalf. So he's saying, we do have a great high priest. Jesus is now our high priest. And he says, who has ascended up into heaven. He didn't just go into the Holy of Holies. He's actually in God's presence. So we have a high priest. It's not just getting near the footstool of God in the temple. It's actually going into God's presence. And he says, that is Jesus, the Son of God. Like, Like our high priest is God's Son. We got an in. He says, so let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That the faith we profess is that we have a relationship with him. We're professing we have a loving relationship with him, that he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and this priest is taking that sacrifice, which was himself, to God and presenting it to God. I mean, if there's ever going to be a worthy sacrifice, it's going to be the high priest saying, I lived a sinless life. I'm giving this to you on their behalf. So then he goes on and he says this. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So then he's coming back and he's saying, listen, not only do we have a high priest who's also God's son, who's presenting a perfect sacrifice for us, we also have a high priest who's a real guy, 
He lived among us. He understands what we're going through. He can empathize with us. He's walked the path we've walked. He understands how hard it is for you. He understands why you would fail again and again and again. After all, he lived with Peter. He hung out with James and John. He lived with these guys, right? How many times do you look at him and say, how many times do I got to tell you? How many times do I got to tell you? How many times do I got to tell you? He can empathize with it, right? He's lived through it. Then he says, he says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There it is. Where I want you to get out of there is confidence. I want you to approach the, gra- approach, approach the grace of God, approach the throne of God with confidence, not only for mercy, but also grace in your time of need. So not just for the mercy you need for forgiveness of sins, but also for the things that you need, things you're coming to, we wanted to come to God for, but you're afraid to. You ever have a moment where you're like, if there's any good time to ask, it's now. Okay, maybe at your job, you just landed a million dollar contract because of a connection you had and you've got a really old computer. How are you going to feel walking into the boss's office being like, hey, guy's like, oh, way to put it there, man. You really came through for us. Yeah, man, I'm really glad I could do that for you. You know, I could really use a new computer. I mean, is there, is there no better time right after you've landed a million dollar contract, right? Or like if, you're one of the, if you, like you're like one of the kids and like you've just like cleaned the whole house, wash and wax dad's car, if there's ever a good time to ask, you know, for, for, for some money, so like maybe then, right? Like right when you're the good graces. He says, you don't need to wait for those kind of times. Because we have a high priest who's presented the perfect sacrifice and is God's son and is in God's presence and understands what we've been through, we should be able to enter God's throne with confidence, knowing he's going to forgive us and ask for whatever we need. We should enter like that. Now, I always struggled with this because of this projection idea. Um, and I've shared this story in years past. If you've heard it before, just go along with it. If you haven't, it's new to you. Um, this, this is something I always go back to because I've always struggled with this. I always have this sense that it takes God a while to get over things. That's projection, right? If it takes you a while to get over things, wouldn't it take God a while to get over things? Like, right? Like, for instance, like if I get on God's bad side and I do something wrong, it might take him a little while before he's gonna, gonna come around on this. I remember one night, years ago. Now, uh, after Melissa passed, I'm a single dad, and I've got three kids. My, my middle daughter has special needs. Do you know how hard it is to find a babysitter for a four-year-old boy, a six-year-old boy, and a five-year-old special needs girl? That's a tall task, right? Like, you can't just get your average run-of-the-mill 16-year-old girl from high school to come over and watch your kids, right? There's a little more involved sometimes, right? So, it's hard to find somebody, is what I'm trying to get at. So, I understood that my sanity as a single parent relied upon my ability to not have to be with my kids all the time. I love you guys, but you know what I'm saying, right? Right? I, I, need, some, I need some me time, right? I, I need to go out and just be able to get out of the house just, just for whatever. So very crucial to my sanity was going to be to find a babysitter who could be with my kids. And it's really hard to find one. So I would look to my boys and say, listen, it's really hard for me to find somebody who will watch Jewel. You boys better not be the reason that this thing gets messed up. If they get to the point where they can't handle a special needs girl, that's fine. I get that. No big deal. But if you guys are the problem, you're answering to me for it, right? <laughs> I got to tell you, I've got great kids. They've only messed this up one time. <laughs> and I haven't forgotten it. I hope they haven't either. <laughs> I came back, and it was the first time this lady had babysat for me. And she, I was like, how were things? She goes, oh, Jewel was wonderful. Jewel was great. She goes, but your boys. I'm like... 
She goes, they would not go to bed for me. They just, they kept, they would stay up. They didn't want to go up. They complained. They whined. I went up there. I found them out of their bed. They were playing in the room. They kept turning lights on, playing with their toys. I had to go up there multiple times to get them. But I was like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really sorry. To, um, I, I, that will not happen again if you're willing to come back. And, <laughs> and so she left. Where do you think, where do you think have it up to here is for me? Like, this is cardinal sin for me. This is, this is my sanity. This is my livelihood, right? I walked up there, plucked those boys out of bed at 11 o'clock at night. It's like, oh, you guys don't need to sleep? Oh, we don't need to sleep. We got some chores to be done around here. And I had those kids sweeping floors, wiping windows, and I remember one of them fell asleep on the stairs. And every time they would complain about how tired they were, oh no, you're not tired. I just got a report that you guys had tons of energy. You guys could stay up all night if, you, if she would just let you. So let's just get up. We got all kinds of things we can do. I was ticked, right? <laughs> like, why take stuff away from your kids? Add stuff to what they have to do, right? That's, that's, that's a better punishment. And so I literally worked them for an hour, pushing them and pushing them. And just every time they would plead for sympathy, they got no sympathy. Dad was not a merciful dad. So finally, I let him go to bed at midnight. Well, Saturday morning in the Swisher household, from the time I was a kid, and then I passed this tradition on my kid, it's big breakfast morning, okay? Uh, waffles, pancakes, French toast, something like that. If we got bacon, we throw that in there too. And I remember the very next morning, uh, I was in the kitchen, and they already had their French toast with their syrup on it and with the cinnamon sugar on it, and they were asking if I could get out the powdered sugar as well. Why not, right? So I go and I'm getting out the powdered sugar. This is like a scene from Elf. I get that, right? So I'm getting out the powdered sugar, and as I'm getting it out, I'm thinking to myself, my kids are sitting here at the table. I'm like a short order cook, serving them because they're, you know, they're four, five, seven years old. They can't do this for themselves. I'm making them breakfast, and they're saying, we want sugar. We want more sugar. We don't have enough sugar. We want more. We want more. And I'm going, yes, yes, yeah. I'm saying yes to everything. And as I'm putting powdered sugar over their cinnamon sugar, over top of their syrup, on their French toast, the thought occurred to me, I could never picture God doing this for me the morning after something I've done. I just couldn't. Like, wouldn't it take a couple days for God to get over it? Wouldn't it take God a little while to simmer down on this? Like, I mean, after I couldn't possibly ask God for sugar upon top of sugar upon top of sugar the very next morning after something I'd done wrong, right? I'd have to wait a little while, maybe do some penance, maybe finish the job I was doing last night cleaning and do a better job of it, right? Maybe make up for it, maybe get back to the point where I could confidently go in and ask for something. And yet here's these kids with full confidence asking for powdered sugar even on top of their other sugar and their other sugar, And in that verse, that verse that Jesus talks about, he says, if you, fathers, which of you, if your sons asked for French toast, (laughs) bread, would give them a stone? Last service, somebody says, you should have given them fruity pebbles. (laughs) (laughs) Get some cereal, man. You ain't getting nothing this morning. Or that night, if they wanted salmon for dinner, would put out there a snake. If you then, even though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, pile sugar upon top of sugar upon top of sugar, how much more would your Father in heaven give good gifts to you who ask him? 
it was so convicting. Because in that moment, I was doing something I couldn't picture God doing. In other words, I saw myself as a more loving, forgiving, quicker to forgive, quicker to give grace, quicker to bless than I ever could picture God being. It was a moment of reality of my own practical theology and how fallen it had fallen short. And God's looking down at me saying, Steve, on your best day, on your most gracious day, on your most loving day, on the day where you're the best parent you could possibly be, given sugar upon top of sugar on top of sugar, on a day after they just committed the cardinal sin of your house, you, are, you would be considered unkind and wicked in compared to how gracious and loving I am. And yet I couldn't imagine asking God for anything the morning after I've done something wrong. So Jesus is saying, can you just get it through your thick skull? I'm not like you. I'm far more loving. I'm far more gracious. I'm not shunning you. That's not me. That's not what I'm doing. Yeah, I want to talk about the sin, but it's forgiven. Let's move on. What is it, what is it that you wanted? What is it you need? You want more powdered sugar? Here you go. You want some, you want some cinnamon sugar on top of that? Here you go. No fruity pebbles this morning. It's big breakfast, and we always do big breakfast. You want something on top of that? I'm here for you. That's God's attitude towards you and towards me. It'd probably be gourmet, though. Mm. I'm thinking of some good French toast I've had, like some cinnamon swirl French toast or something. Take an apple fritter, slice it in half, make French toast out of that. You'll thank me for that later. <laughs> or maybe you won't. Uh, so sometimes I think God's mad at me and shunning me. The other thing that comes up with me being faithful in prayer is sometimes I'm the one mad at God. I'm the one shunning God. Been there for that? Been there in a season for that? It's 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 ridiculous as that. Like I'm looking at God, like God, I'm not talking to you. I won't talk to you for the next three years. I've done it for six. Yeah, I've had those seasons where you're mad at God because you were right and He was wrong. Like, you would never say that, but you felt that. Job actually says it. You, you, you ever read that? Job, if you don't know his story, everything goes bad for him in his life. A lot of bad stuff happens to him. And it's not, it's not like he deserved any of it, right? He didn't do anything to deserve it. That's what's so frustrating with him. And I'm going to read the message translation just because it's easier and quicker to, to explain. Uh, he says, if somebody wanted to take God to court, this is uh, Job chapter 9, to bring a case before him, what chance do we have? Not one in a thousand. In other words, he's like, I wish I could just sue God for what he's done to me, right? I mean, if there's ever been, you know, an issue of, you know, negligence, look right here. If there's ever been a wrongful harm case, I've got one, right? But how do you sue God? Like, like how would you even pull that one off, right? Anybody ever felt like as if you wanted to take God to court to be able to sue him? Like, I know that's a little extreme. No. I would never. I am a pious Christian here on a Sunday morning. I've never felt those thoughts before. Maybe I should be up there preaching instead of you. I'm clearly much more holy. I won't even go there. Um, he's like, so how could I ever argue with him or construct a defense that would in some way influence God? Even though I'm innocent, I couldn't prove it. I could only throw myself on the judge's mercy. And then he goes on to say, like, it'd be like, a, like when, you get, when you get pulled over for speeding in a small town, and then when you, when you go fight the ticket, and you get to the courthouse, and the sheriff who pulled you over is now the judge, <laughs> right? What chance are you going to have? The judge's like, now hear ye, hear ye. Oh, let's have the uh, officer talk about it. He was speeding. 
Sounds like you were speeding. What do you have to say? Job is picturing this kind of a courtroom scenario, right? Like, who's going to be the judge between me and God? God's always the judge. How can I win on this? It's like a small town court that's rigged. He says, if I called on God and he himself were to answer me, then and only then would I believe he'd hear me. In other words, like this could ever actually happen. He says, as it is, the way things really are now, he just knocks me around, he beats me up till I'm black and blue for no good reason. In other words, he kind of like, he pictures God like the one who's going to rough you up before the, before the court case. He's going to send his thugs out on you. Like, just picture how mad you are if somebody sues you, right? How much is this going to tick God off if you take him to court and sue him? He's going to send his thugs after you. And then he says, he wouldn't even let me catch my breath. He'd just pile bitterness upon bitterness. Uh, it'd be like you sue him, then he countersues you, and he sues you uh, so many times, you don't have the lawyers to make up for it. You couldn't afford the lawyer fees to make up for it is what he's getting at. And then he says, and if it's a question of who's stronger, obviously he's going to win hands down. If it's a question of justice, who's going to even serve him the, 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 the subpoena, right? Who's going to do that? He's the judge and the sheriff. He says, even though I'm innocent, anything I say would incriminate me. Blameless as I am, my defense just makes me sound worse. Like, I know you guys are like listening to me right now, saying like as if I should be able to take God to court, and that just makes me sound bad, so it only makes me sound worse when I even say that I'm, I'm innocent, right? You know, because, oh, you just think you're perfect, don't you? I'm not saying I'm perfect, I'm just saying in this case, I'm right. Oh, you think you're right and God's wrong? Well, I know that sounds bad, but I am. You felt that, right? Job is so frustrated. He's so angry with this. There's been an injustice and God didn't seem to care. And he's mad and he's frustrated. Or what about when you've cried out to God and you've prayed and he doesn't answer your prayer? Ever been there? Jesus has. Once was asked the question, has Jesus ever prayed anything or asked anything of God that he wasn't given? The answer is actually yes. Remember his prayer in the garden? He says this, Abba, Father, like he's not saying... Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, he is crying out to Dad. This is like, Daddy, 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 please. He is crying out in the most intimate, closest way. He says, everything is possible for you. Think about the prayers you've prayed when you say, God, I know you can do anything. What's coming next? It is a prayer for the impossible. This is the Hail Mary prayer where you're asking God to come through. You know, they're about to die. Save them. You know, this is, you know, the, the marriage is over. Do something. I know everything is possible for you. He says, take this cup from me. When he says take this cup from me, what he's referring to is he's metaphorically talking about take the responsibility of going to the cross, becoming sin for all of humanity, suffering the death, and being eternally separated from you and being sent to hell. That's what he's saying there. That's what he's talking about. He says, take this cup from me. Now, had the prayer ended there, he'd probably be where you and I are. God, take this cup from me. I know you can do everything. Dot, dot, dot. Judas still comes. Judas betrays him. He ends up going before the kangaroo court. They bring out false witnesses. They railroad him through that. Throw him over to the Romans. Railroad him through that. Bring him back over. Get him crucified. And right there on the cross, you'd be going just as mad as you are right now. But if you know the prayer well, he doesn't end the prayer there, does he? He goes on and says this thing that we don't typically add to our prayers, or if we add them, we don't really mean them. He says, yet not as I will, but your will be done. Remember in the, in the 
Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yeah, that will be done thing is kind of hard. Because sometimes it's God's will that like Jesus you suffer. Sometimes it's God's will that you go to the cross. Sometimes it's God's will, like it was for Habakkuk, that God's going to send people more evil than you to judge you. Like Habakkuk's in the situation where he's like, God, have you seen the state of our country right now? Do something about it. God's like, okay, I'll rise up the caliphate to come over and conquer you. No, not that. That's exactly what he does. Picture right now, you're crying out to God. Oh, God, our, our country is just going to hell in a handbasket, and, and I don't like you know, who's running the show. I don't like our economy. I don't like the morals of this nation. I can't believe they do something about it. He's like, okay, I will rise up the caliphate from the Middle East to come in and take over America. No, not that. That's exactly what happens in Habakkuk. He says, I'm going to do something that was going to blow your mind. I'm going to let the Babylonians come in and destroy you. And he says, how can you, you couldn't, you know, no, you ain't going to do that. You couldn't let some, I, we're bad, but you can't use somebody more evil than us to judge us. He's like, oh, yes, I can. Watch me. Be utterly amazed, he says in chapter 1, verse 5. I'm about to do it. That's exactly what he does. But what if something came again and again and again, I just prayed God over and over and over again. What about really persistent in it? Paul says, I prayed again and again and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't know what it was. He calls it a thorn in his flesh, something that just continually bothered him, pained him. I don't know whether it was an addiction issue. I don't know whether it was a sin issue, a temptation issue that he struggled with, or if it was just some, some sort of physical ailment. We don't know. And again and again and again, he says, God, take this from me, and God doesn't. Sometimes it's God's will that it lingers. And later on, he says, you know, I realize why is because it keeps me humble. I thought about that. I was like, you know, if I got to the point where I didn't have any pain or suffering, everything worked out like I wanted it to, I didn't struggle with any sin, I would become the most pompous, pharisaical pastor you'd ever not want to be around. <laughs> Why? Because my whole message every week would be, if you could just be more like me, I don't understand why everything's going wrong in your life. I don't have any problems. What are you doing? I don't even know why we got to celebrate recovery. What do we need that for? Just say you're not going to do it no more and move on. That's what I did. I just prayed and done. I could celebrate today. Right? He says, no, 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 no. To keep me from being that arrogant, God allowed this to remain, so I'd have to work at it day after day, so I'd be driven to my knees again and again and again and again. Sometimes his plans, like it was at the end of Hebrews 11, after Hebrews 11, you hear about all these great stories of all these wonderful things and the mouths of lions being shut and the Red Sea being parted. You get down to the end, it says, yeah, but there's other people. They, they got sawed in two. They got burned at the stake and boiling water and crucified and stuff like that. And you're like, what? He says, yeah. He says, um, they were all committed for their faith too, but none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they might become perfect. It says earlier in there, it says their hope was in a better resurrection. You ever been in that place where you didn't receive what was promised? I have. What I thought was promised, what I thought was coming to me. And nope, didn't happen. Tough moment to continue praying, isn't it? Instead of having that like, everybody wants to have that movie, you know, rags or riches story, right, you know? God, I know it's hard right now. 
but I can't wait to see this miracle story you're going to do in my life, and I just want to be there to share the documentary someday. I'll, tes- I'll, I'll give my testimony to the nations when you just do this. And then it's like, no, nope, you're the, you're the tragic story that other people want to avoid. <laughs> yeah. What if my only hope is the ultimate resurrection where God says, then there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more separation, no more sorrow. What if that's the only hope I have? In those moments, that's where I I look to my patron, St. John the Baptist. (laughs) Are you really the one? I think I should be looking for somebody else. That's what he said when he was in 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 that moment. He was looking to get out And the word back was, nope, nope, everything's going right according to plan. Your hope's the better resurrection. That's your plan. Now, the thing about Job, you have to understand, when he's crying out to God and he's so mad at God because God won't give him an audience and there's no justice there. The thing you've got to know about the book of Job, one of the key things in the book of Job is he never shuns God. He's mad at God and he's arguing with God and he's yelling at God. No matter how frustrated he gets, he's still talking to God. His prayer life never ends, even though he's mad. Other thing you've got to know about Job is that he never gets his answers either. He's asking why. We're told why. He's not told why. Rather, he's just given a different perspective. Now, that perspective is shared by God in chapters 39, 40, 41, and 40, in the beginning of 42. Okay? I can summarize up that perspective by reading a passage out of Ecclesiastes little Bible knowledge for you. Ecclesiastes and Job's are kind of like parallel books, okay? They're both talking about the meaning of life, purpose of life, um, and they're coming at it from opposite angles. In the story of Job, he loses everything and questions his existence and asks the questions of why. Over in Ecclesiastes, he's given everything and still questions the meaning of existence and asks why. I know a lot of you are like, I'll take door number two, please, God. <laughs> both of them deal with misery, though. Now, In Ecclesiastes, he gives the same summary statement that Job ultimately comes to and is given uh, as God explains things in uh, Job 39, 40, 41. So I'm going to read the Ecclesiastes passage because it's much more concise. Y'all get that? All right. In Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, you know, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he said eternity in the hearts of, of humanity. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So he says, okay. God, I've got to trust that somehow you're going to make this beautiful in your time. And for many of us, it's only in light of eternity. Now, there's some times, and they're amazing, aren't they? Where something happens, you don't know why, and then later on you realize why, and you go, oh, God, you're amazing. Oh, that was so awesome. And you tell everybody about these great things that God did, how you went through this period where you had no idea why this happened, and this was all horrible, but really God had a plan all along, and now it came out wonderful. And some of you listen to people tell those stories, and you're like, must be nice. Ain't happening for me. What's that say about me? It says that for you it's not happening in the sight of eternity. I, I used to hold out hope that I would have some of those stories for some of the things that happened in my life. Some of those things I've just filed away and say, nope, not this side. But by faith, I've just got to trust, say, God, okay, one day you're going to make all things beautiful. You said eternity in my heart, so I know this life isn't all the end. 
I know everything doesn't have to be made right before, before this life's over. The game's not over when my life is over. The game extends into eternity. In eternity, somehow, you'll look back and I'll see the beauty in what you're doing right now, even though I can't see it right now. Because I can't fathom what you're doing from beginning to end. I can't see the whole picture. I just see this, I see this one little slice, which is the now, which is my little sliver of life in all of existence. Now, we have evidence for God doing something like this. I mean, the, the greatest example of this, of course, is the cross, is it not? Jesus dies on the cross, this very thing that Jesus says, you know, let's just find another way. And God's like, nope, this is the way, this is my will. How did everybody feel Friday about that, that decision? How were you feeling on Saturday about that decision? Now how do you feel about it on Sunday? And now for all eternity, we look back over it and we say that was the most beautiful thing that ever happened. We call it Good Friday, which is an understatement. God can totally change the worst of experiences and completely change something you, where you see the beauty in it, the glory in it, the majesty in it. Second thing about that is, I view my life as though it's a movie about me and all of you all are just bit actors. You have no backstory. None at all. You don't exist. You don't really matter. You're just there to contribute to my story. That's how we see life, right? Could it be, though, that sometimes part of your story is to contribute to somebody else's story? And the things that happen to you, you're looking to say, God, make this sense from my life. And he's like, later on, you'd be like, oh, no, that had nothing to do with you. That was just so that she would see what was going on here, and she would make different decisions, and she'd have a loving relationship with me. So if you want to know the beauty in all this is now she has a relationship with me here in heaven because you went through that. And you're like, oh, I was trying to figure out how that worked in my life because this story is all about me. No, 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 it's, it's the beauty of all of it. Think about this. All of history really is about Jesus Christ, right? Right? I mean, if, 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 any, if, if this world is about anything, it's about him, right? And yet, why was it he was going to the cross? Because of you. Didn't fulfill his story in any way. The one who time is all about went through the most tragic thing he could go through, not for him, but for you. Maybe God's putting you through things, not for you, but for somebody else. And as long as your prism is only about, God, how does this contribute to my life and my happiness and my purpose, and I'm not going to talk to you until, until we figure that out, well, then it's going to be a while, I guess. I'll end up with this. The last part of that scene it was, it was really important. So Dwight's shunning Andy. He's mad at him for something. But towards the end of the clip there, he unshuns for something. What did he unshun him for? He needed something, right? It's funny how we'll unshun God when we need something. God, I'm not going to talk to you. Oh. Unshun. Hey, God, uh, I really need help with this over here. <laughs> Reshun. And then God comes back. Do you want extra cinnamon sugar on that? Unshun. Yes. Reshun. <laughs> Will God actually still talk to me in this moments where I'm still struggling with this? Psalm 102. He starts off and he says, oh God, hear my prayer. Let me cry out and come to you for help. Don't hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Can you just listen as I call out to you? Please answer me. And then down in verse 17, he comes to the realization and recognition later on and he says, he will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He won't despise their plea. He wants to hear from you. Even when you're mad at him. Even when you don't understand. This is personal for me because I got really frustrated with God for a long time. He was kind of like a business partner 
like it's kind of pertinent to my job that I work with God for, you know, for what I'm doing. But let's face it, you can work with people and not love them, right? You can accomplish a lot with people that you don't have an intimate, close relationship with. That's where I was at with God for quite a while. Somebody said, what broke you out of it? I would love to say that I put on my big boy pants and I got over it. That I theologically could see the horizon and say, you know, God's got other plans. I see that. Let's move forward, God. I wish I could say that. I, I hope that that's what you will do. I really do. For me, as I got moved to a point of such desperation, I couldn't shun him any longer. That's the honest truth. Like the psalmist would say, he will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He won't despise their plea. Paul would tell the Philippians as he's in jail, he says, don't be anxious for anything. But in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Says the guy who's in prison, writing with joy in his heart, who's not sure if he's going to get released or get executed. Says keep praying to God. For some of you, the message this morning is, can you just put on your big boy pants and trust that God knows what he's doing? He's going to make all things beautiful in his time. It may not be your time. It may be in the side of eternity. Maybe everything that happened to you has no purpose in your life whatsoever. Maybe it was all for somebody else. I don't know. Can you just expand that enough? Job's never told why, but yet he looks to God and he says, God, I spoke of things I, I did not know, things too wonderful for me, for me to fathom. And all God tells him is like, listen, just trust me, I know what I'm doing. It's like, yeah, I, I get that now, I'm sorry. Have your way, do your will. Not my will, yours. And let me trust you in the journey and grow with you knowing that someday you'll make all things beautiful. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I thank you, Lord, that no matter how frustrated we get, no matter how mad we get, you're right there loving on us. Father, for most of us in this room, for all of us in this room, though, we just need to begin by just confessing our sins to you. And right now, there's something that's always on our heart, Lord, that we wonder, can you talk to me? Can you listen to me? Can you answer me with this sin in my heart? So, Father, may we just confess it to you and ask for forgiveness. Knowing that the second it's confessed, it's, it's forgiven. And that you're ready to back up a, a dump truck full of grace and blessing on top of us. So, Father, may we come before you in the same way that my kids can come and ask for sugar upon top of powdered sugar, on top of cinnamon sugar, on top of corn syrup sugar, and have that same kind of confidence to be able to come before you, Lord, knowing that you will hear our cries, even in the midst of our childishness, even in the midst of our poor theology, even the morning after a sin. May we come before you with such confidence. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.